As you're taking your seats, if you would, please take a copy of God's Word, and let's turn to Isaiah 52. We're looking at all of chapter 53, but the last three verses of 52 go with it. Um, if that's confusing, blame the people who decided to put chapters and verses in Bibles many years ago. Um, but uh, we have them to thank because it's a whole lot easier to find things now, too. So uh, the passage is also on the inside cover of the bulletin. And uh, again, it's Isaiah 52, verse 13 through 53, verse 12. Lots of the same numbers there, easy to confuse. Without further ado, hear the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. <clears throat> Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who is believed? What he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? <clears throat> Excuse me. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all." He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave, <clears throat> excuse me, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word this morning. Let's pray. <clears throat> O Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask it all in Jesus' great name. Amen. This passage forces us to ask, 
what's your problem? Now that I have your attention, let me explain. What is keeping you and me from embracing this savior, this servant that we see here? What's the problem? Is it prophecy? Is it the idea? You don't think it's possible for Isaiah to predict the future under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Because, you know, if so, you have bigger problems than just this passage. Is it a savior who suffers? The Jews would have preferred a savior who didn't suffer, who conquered. 700 years after Isaiah's prophecy, Jesus came unto his own, but his own received him not. They didn't understand him. I don't know what's going on with my voice this morning. We'll all get through it. They didn't understand him. And they didn't understand themselves either. And you know, we aren't that different. You see, you and I are the problem. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. We sang those words just last week from how deep the Father's love for us. And we read just a moment ago, all we like sheep have gone astray and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of us are responsible for what happens, what is accurately predicted in this passage. There's this deep sickness we have. It's called sin. It's lawlessness. It's rebellion against our God and creator. It's deep, so deep that God had to send his son who was very God, a very God to suffer like this. What's our problem? Well, there's a few. We have a theology problem. Whether we believe that God could have predicted all of this through a mere human messenger like Isaiah We have an expectations problem. We're very worldly in how we want to win the battles that are in front of us. We want a savior who will reign and conquer with a sword. Peter wanted that once upon a time. We are repulsed by the idea of a savior who suffers. And why is that? Because we know what our suffering savior says about us. It says we were so lost, so far gone that we need someone to die to redeem us. Oh, we have other problems too. But we're about to meet the one who can heal those problems if you're not repulsed, if you don't turn away. And so I say to you this morning, behold your God who can begin to heal your problems now, who will one day erase them entirely in glory. Five paragraphs in this passage. So we have five points this morning. The first one is this, the surprising servant. The surprising servant at the end of verse 50, uh, chapter 52. The servant who will be gentle yet just, who will sustain the weary with a word. Oh, how Israel must have longed for this man to come. How they must have longed for him. And oh, how surprised they must have been. When Isaiah 52 and 53 rolls around, when they heard these words, when they years later saw the one who fulfilled all these things, this servant, he would be wise, God says in verse 12. He would also be high, lifted up, exalted. If those words sound familiar, flip over to Isaiah 6. You'll see that they are ascribed to God himself in that famous vision of Isaiah's. And so therefore, these words here likely allude to the fact that this servant, he had a pre-incarnate existence in exaltation. What am I saying? That the one who would fulfill these words 
was high and lifted up before he was ever born, incarnated, enfleshed. You could also say he was before he was ever born. He's not a mere human But he would not be all that they expected. He would be surprising in more ways than one. Verse 14, and as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance in his form, beyond that of the children of mankind. Pick that up in a second. You see this right now, these first few verses are actually a short summary of everything we'll cover in the rest of the passage, especially in verses three through six. But in short, he would suffer. You see that beginning to be revealed here. He would suffer in grotesque fashion, appearance marred beyond human semblance. Is that a man, they might have said, underneath all the blood and the the torn flesh? And again, the verb tenses get interesting here. Some of this is written in the past tense, but it is a prophetic past tense, speaking in the past tense about future events because they are so certain to happen. It's a done deal, but it's not done yet. As Isaiah writes it, if you catch my drift, but verse 15 says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Now, is the servant sprinkling many nations, or is he startling many nations? As the footnote says, they're startling. It could be translated that way. Is he purifying, sprinkling them? That's what sprinkling represented in various Old Testament ceremonies and sacrifices. He would certainly do that. He would purify his people. Or is he startling them as some translations in the footnotes, the alternate translations say, well, sprinkle seems to be the preferred translation, but nonetheless, he was startling. He was surprising all the same. You see that in various places in these other verses. What does verse 15 say? It says the kings, they shut their mouths because of him. They stopped talking. Barry Webb explains this. The one that people regarded as unclean, they were appalled at him, remember. Verse 14. The one that people regarded as unclean will turn out to be the one who cleanses others. See, even the method of his cleansing and saving shut the mouths of the accusers. And again, the opening verses, they're a summary of what comes after. The one who was disregarded, the one who didn't meet expectations. He's full of surprises, so surprising that they thought nothing of this Savior. And then when his salvation was complete, they were shocked once again at what had happened. The wisdom of God confounded them, defied their expectations. We heard this in adult Sunday school last week. The only help for Belshazzar, From the book of Daniel, the only help for Belshazzar was a cast-off Jew whose God was despised. The same is true for you. Is that a problem for you? Do you want a savior? Someone who is more confident, more victorious, more well-liked. Someone who won't get you shunned at dinner parties. Oh, such saviors exist. But they probably won't lay down their life for you. They probably won't, definitely won't absorb the wrath of God for you in your place so that you never have to face it yourself. Your problem, your biggest problem, 
all due respect, can be solved by a cast-off Jew who was despised, who confounded the expectations of his people. He was a surprising savior, a surprising servant, but he was exactly the servant and the savior that they needed. The surprising servant. He was also, secondly, the sorrowful servant. The sorrowful servant. Chapter 53, verses 1 through 3. Man of sorrows, what a name. We will sing that in a moment, but it is all based on verse 3, the rest of this passage. And for now, notice the speaker seems to change. In Isaiah 53, 1 through 3, God is not speaking of his servant here. God's not speaking. Now it is an us who is speaking. Some believe these servants eyewitnesses, people who saw this one who was to come, the servant. The eyewitnesses are speaking. Once again, it's all prophetic. It's telling you what's going to happen. But these eyewitnesses, they're speaking as you read it. They're speaking with 2020 hindsight. But their foresight was not 2020, more like 22,000 bottom line. They couldn't see. Their vision was warped, clouded on the front end. But now they see. Now they understand. They believe and they want others to believe as well. They want others to see the surprising strength that the arm of the Lord accomplished and revealed. And it's not just that the servant was surprising, confounding the expectations. He was also despised. His nickname was Sorrow. Theologians would refer to this stage of his life as his state of humiliation. That doesn't simply mean that he was laughed at and mocked, but oh, he was. It also means he was brought low in every way that you can imagine. Verse 2 sounds, starts out somewhat positive, maybe, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Some things this points to a promising beginning. <clears throat> and years later, a certain Galilean young man would fit that bill. He was really smart, all the rabbis said, even at just age 12. Yet at some point, his family would practically disown him. Some of them thought he was crazy. And apparently he was, he was kind of plain looking. Not exactly handsome. He didn't have executive style hair or a kingly disposition. Verse 12, excuse me, verse 2 of chapter 53, for he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Not a ringing endorsement. Is that all they say about him? No, it goes on. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Despised, it's mentioned twice in that verse. He's rejected. There's no positive words in verse 3. All of it reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, choosing the foolish to shame the wise. That is true of the sorrowful servant. It's also true of his people, of those whom he saves. Our Savior had to endure sorrow 
in suffering to bring us back to God. What does that say about us? How far gone, how far lost were we? But do respect, that's not the only question to ask here. I realize that other question. We don't really like thinking about that, do we? But there's another important question. How far did the servant go to save you and me? How far did he go? How deep did he go? He went to the far country and back to bring us such a great salvation, to save us to the uttermost. He walked through the valley of the shadow of death and then some. He endured something far worse than the belly of a fish or a whale to save you. And no, we're not talking about Jonah. We're not talking about Geppetto or Pinocchio. We're talking about the sorrowful servant. Part of his sorrow was his suffering because he is also thirdly the suffering servant. The suffering servant. You see it in verses four through six. Those words, suffering servant, that could be the title for this whole section here, but they seem particularly appropriate for verses four through six. Verse three, previous section, it ends with the witnesses admitting that many of them, including themselves, many of them turned their face away from this servant, this surprising, sorrowful, despised servant. Why is that? Maybe they were indifferent to, them, to him. Maybe they saw the suffering. Maybe they thought he deserved it. You can imagine what they might have said. If he would just stop rocking the boat, picking fights with the religious leaders, as if the servant was the one who was picking the fights, as if suffering wasn't a part of his mission. If he would just stop claiming to be God. Claiming? Claiming? What if it wasn't a claim? What if it was true? And now they know it's true, don't they? Can't you hear their conviction in these verses? We'll read them all. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We, us, our, nine times in these verses, you see one of those words. Who is speaking? Who is speaking? We've said maybe it's the eyewitnesses who are speaking. I think there's another way to look at that. Who is speaking here? Who is the us? Who is the we who have, like sheep, gone astray, turned to our own way? Who is it that can say the, that, that with his wounds we are healed? Who is the we? It's everyone who knows that this is the Savior we need, the servant we need. Maybe you've underestimated him, this servant. Maybe you've mocked him. Maybe you've said, I'll never be a Christian. Not as long as Christians do this or that and then rattle off the latest negative news headlines or that really nerdy guy you knew who was a Christian. Maybe you've said things like that and you're like, well, I can't go back on it now. So maybe I need to be blunt. By his wounds, you can be healed right now. Healed of hypocrisy, healed of rebellion, healed of ignorance and pride, healed of the sin that runs so deep. 
His chastisement can bring you peace. All the guilt can be gone. All the punishment that you deserve that hangs over your head. And let's clarify, I am not saying that you'll be fully new tomorrow. I'm not saying that you'll never struggle against the sin that so easily entangles. The Bible doesn't say that. But it does say you'll have new power to resist it. To say no to it. To say no, to renounce ungodliness, as Titus says, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, the day that he will return a second time. In short, you won't be fully new, but you will be genuinely new when you embrace this Savior. When the testimony of verses 4 through 6 becomes your testimony, your story. When you realize his wounds have paid my ransom. When you come to know this is the Savior we need. This is the Savior I need. Because we all, including me, like sheep, that is not a compliment. Like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. So you can either be healed by his wounds or you can fend for yourself. Healed by his wounds. The punishment for all of our iniquities that God laid on him. You can fend for yourself. You can hope that your good deeds are enough for God to reconsider. Spoiler alert. It's not going to happen. Sin deserves punishment. And your Savior demands a response. A response to his offer of pardon. In forgiveness, in substitution, him in our place of punishment, us in his place of righteousness and perfect obedience. Sin deserves punishment. Your Savior demands a response. Your suffering Savior, the suffering servant, who is also, fourthly, the silent servant. The silent servant, verses 7 through 9. It's possible that Isaiah's voice is the one that's speaking in this section, but we know who it's not. It's definitely not the suffering servant who's speaking because the servant doesn't speak at all. He is silent. He doesn't speak anywhere in this passage, including verse seven. It says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So reminiscent, isn't it, of Jesus' silence during his trial for blasphemy, other things. So reminiscent that some think it's impossible that Isaiah wrote this. What, What do you mean that this was written 700 years before his death? No way the evidence contradicts that. But nonetheless, it does seem unbelievable. It also seems unbelievable that this servant, he was silent, he was submissive, he suffered for our sins despite no sin of his own. That's what his generation thought, that this was crazy. It's unbelievable. Verse 8 talks about that. And when our generation, when every generation thinks about it, we're forced to say the same thing. Things like this, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? There's more amazing things. This silent, suffering servant of him, it is said in verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit 
in his mouth. What did they make of that verse back in Isaiah's day? Who knows? But what did they say years later when Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, buried Jesus in his tomb? All of which took place shortly after Jesus suffered a death worthy of a murderous, wicked deadbeat. Well, if they were smart, they didn't say much at all. They simply wondered. They simply stood amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wondered how he could love me. A sinner condemned unclean. You know, all of this reminds you, the the silent suffering servant. When you see the suffering, when you see how he suffered silently, it points to his willingness in the process, does it not? You see, Jesus could have defended himself during his trial, but he didn't. Jesus, in one sense, could have stopped his crucifixion. He could have called the angels, yeah, you know, He had power to stop it, but he didn't. And we should be so glad that he didn't. But again, he suffered willingly. He was committed and then some, you might say. You know, most of the time, our commitment to something, our commitment shows what we want, does it not? Same is true for everyone in the body of Christ. I was thinking about this because recently I was talking to someone and he linked the ideas of commitment and contentment in a way that I hadn't considered before. He mentioned that proverb of discontent that we've all heard before. The grass is always greener on the other side. And he goes, but you know what I like to say? The grass is greenest where you water it. The grass is greenest where you water it. In other words, if you're committed to something, it is amazing what return you get, whether it's growing grass or growing relationships. It's amazing what return you get, what what fruits begin to bloom and blossom in your life, like that rare jewel of Christian contentment, that gift that helps you begin to see the grass through green-colored glasses. And why do I bring all this up? Well, number one, if you're discontent with certain things in your life, then you might need to ask how committed you are and whether that would make a difference. Where are you watering the grass in your life? Just a thought. And secondly, because at one time, I wasn't very committed to my salvation and you weren't either. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Wasn't very committed, but praise the Lord, Jesus was committed. Jesus was committed to suffering silently, steadfastly suffering. And we are the ones who get the benefit, aren't we? Is this the Savior you want? Is he the one who's popular at dinner parties? If not, maybe you need new dinner parties. Maybe you need to tell the guests, the friends about this servant. Because the one who suffered silently on our behalf, he's the servant that we need, the savior that we need. He's the savior that society needs. So may God give us ears to hear it, us and everyone with whom we live, work, and play. That's the silent servant who is also, fifthly and finally, the substitutionary servant. The substitutionary servant. You see it in verses 10 through 12. This word could have Applied to point three as well, substitution, substitutionary. But what I hope you see in all this is the purpose. 
the end result of his suffering. The end result of his suffering, both for him and for us. Look with me at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This was not pointless suffering. Now, yes, if God is sovereign, if he is directing all of our affairs, then no suffering is ultimately pointless. True enough. But a lot of suffering seems pointless, doesn't it? Because we can't explain it. We don't know exactly what the end result is going to be. But we rest in the fact that his ways are higher than our our ways. (laughs) But God explains this one. (laughs) Why did your Savior have to suffer and be despised? Because, quote, it was the will of the Lord. Will of the Lord to crush him. To crush him instead of crushing you. He became the ultimate guilt offering. There's plenty of Old Testament background there. He was the one who was taking away the sins, not just of one individual or a group or a tribe, but taking away the sins of the world. He would be a better guilt offering because once he was sacrificed, he didn't stay dead. No, it says he will see his offspring, his spiritual descendants in all of God's purposes, it says, all of his holy will will prosper. It will surely come to pass. And what are some of those purposes? Look at verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This bearing of iniquities, well, we've we've talked about that already, but how about the making many to be accounted righteous? Maybe it was implied, maybe, maybe not, but it is definitely clear here. It seems to come into new focus, new light. This is good news. It's saying, it's saying this, that the servant, it's not simply that our sin is taken away through his ministry. God doesn't simply just reset our score to zero to get us out of bankruptcy court, to get us out of the negative, out of the red No, God also gives us the winning lottery ticket. All of us. All of us who say it was my sin that held him there. That by his wounds, I am healed. I'm mixing my metaphors, but what do I mean? I mean that God, as it says here, counts us as righteous. He counts us in the right. You know, we could never do that on our own. If you don't believe me, just ask the Apostle Paul. Look at Philippians 3. He tried. He failed. He realized what was better. Being found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own by obeying the law, but having the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Knowing that in short, Jesus paid it all. It is as if Jesus stepped up to the counter and says, Hello, my name is Jesus. I obeyed in every place where this man failed. I have the perfect righteousness that he needs to satisfy all of God's demands. Take the balance out of my account. Do I sign here? Thank you. And not only that, but verse 12 says, The servant will return from his mission Declaring the death of death, and he will divide the spoil as if he is a victorious warrior. Victory through suffering. In other words, he will return to the same glory that he had with the Father. 
before the world began. And as for the servant's people, it also says the servant will intercede for them in verse 12. What does that look like? Well, sometimes we sing about it. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransom sinner die. He doesn't just suffer for our sins. He doesn't just give us his righteousness on top of all that. He also, he also pleads for our souls. He pleads so that Satan's accusations might be silenced by a better cry. Forgive him. Forgive him. Forgive that ransom sinner because I paid all the cost of his sin. I substituted myself that I might suffer for his sin and live for his righteousness. I asked you at the beginning, what's your problem? What's all of our problems? We have problems, don't we? All of us do. But we have a solution. We have a savior. We have a servant, a surprising, sorrow-filled, silently suffering, substitutionary servant who has done all that we needed him to do. Is he the savior that you imagined? Maybe, maybe not. But he's the savior you need. And so before you turn away, before you say, I don't want to look at him, he's not what I wanted. He's surprising. He's not attractive. He's repulsive looking. Before you turn away, take one last look. The Savior you need. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, <clears throat> as we've said, we don't always like what our suffering servant says about us. We deserve suffering. We were so far gone, so far lost, so Wicked that the only way to bring us back was to suffer for what we deserved. Suffer all the way, absorbing all the wrath of God. Poured out upon our sin, placed upon another. We, wanna, we don't want to admit we're that bad. We instinctively want to do something. How do we pay it back? And the truth is we can't. And so instead, help us to rest upon the finished work of Christ. Help it to fill our hearts with gratitude for the one who saved us, for the only one who could save us. Help us to know him. Help us to know his love and help us to be grateful. We pray it all in Jesus' great name. Amen.